0: Flourishing Education, the podcast where I share the powerful imperfectly perfect conversations with disruptors of the education system in the UK and beyond. I would really like to encourage you to take a listen and see what's possible as I ask the question, how can we change the way we educate and parent our children and young people so that they can truly become flourishing curious Lifelong learners and young adults. I hope you enjoy these episodes as much as I've enjoyed recording them and creating them. Please do not hesitate to connect with me on LinkedIn, Fabian Vells, and/or and/or on Twitter at FlourishingHE. And please let me know what's your favorite episode or favourite part of the podcast. I look forward to hearing from you. And in the meantime, I truly hope you are thriving and flourishing. Wishing you a fabulous day wherever you are in the world.
1: Hello, and welcome to another powerful, imperfectly perfect conversation for the Flourishing Education podcast. Today, I'm delighted to be sharing round two. Uh, of a conversation with the wonderful Max Gerardo so he's Max he's uh, one of the founders of the visionaries and I recently had a conversation with him on the podcast I think it might be conversation 150 or 149 I can't quite remember but go and check it out if you want to start with that or just start with this conversation Um, and the first conversation was a treat so I'm sure we in for a another <laughs> three so very warm welcome to the podcast Max.
2: thanks for inviting me back again good to be here
1: yes it's lovely um so Max in the previous conversation we looked at all the work you do with the visionaries and we talked about the importance for teenagers of like rites of passage you know, and, and all those things but we also talked about other parts of the work that you do with the visionaries and we thought we would make that the topic of the podcast for today so shall we start with that do you want to frame it do you want to uh you know talk about what we're going to talk about for for today
2: yeah so uh, i guess for anyone who hasn't listened to the previous conversation the visionaries is a is a social enterprise we're based in london and our guiding inquiry is really about how do we support regenerative leadership to emerge um, in young people and in educators uh, and those working in the systems of education and uh, obviously the terms regenerative leadership can mean lots of different things so we and we don't claim to have the one definitive answer so we really hold that as an inquiry about you know what does the world need right now and from those working with young people and young people and what do we need to be supporting young people to to focus their attention on and cultivate in themselves and in their communities. And so, for us, a big foundational belief is that that, that has to start with our connection, uh, with connection and belonging. And for us, that really starts not just in a connection belonging to ourselves and to each other, but to uh, the living world that we're a part of. So, we take a, this ecosystems approach in our work with schools and educators and educational settings uh, youth settings for young people and hold that inquiry and use yeah and really help people to look at the systems we've created through an ecosystemic lens i guess i'd love to Use this conversation as a chance to explore what what do we actually mean by that and yeah, hopefully this yeah. could be a bit of a, a reference conversation to, to spark some thinking and ideas for those yeah. that are looking to to take that kind of approach that know that the way that we're doing things currently isn't serving
1: yes i'd love that okay so the linguist in me first of all wants to go straight to okay regenerative leadership and eco sort of system approach in education could you define that for 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 me as a linguist i sort of like i always love started starting with a let's have a common definition and then we all we're all singing from the same hymn sheet we know what we're talking about great
2: yeah um so i guess the word regenerative is has become a bit of a buzzword but it does for me at least in in the way that we conceptualize it the visionaries is all about thinking about natural life cycles and that in any cycle in nature there is a a moment of regeneration where you know life and death are natural parts of the cycle and then that that renewal and that moment of creation creation is really part of the, of the cycle so for me the, the the word really has to do with renewal uh, Creation of life and life, life something that is life affirming and life creating, uh, and you could say health creating um, or health promoting in that way. So, regenerative leadership is really about uh, taking actions and taking responsibility for enhancing life, and you could obviously apply that to different settings. And in our, in our context, it's like how do you how do you create more life enhancing settings for young people to learn and grow in
1: Um, amazing and I'm I'm listening at the minute to Kate Raworth's uh, book on the donut economy and so that what you've just said sort of is really interesting because it sounds so the opposite of what our economies and our countries focus on, right? And in education and in, in, in some in some parts, we, we focus on in the sense that it's all about GDP and it's about that word growth. Um, and what I've heard you say is very much, you know, the this the need for us to not just be constantly doing, doing or constantly uh, achieving things, but that there are also Times when we need to rest, and times when we need to uh, do less, and you know, I guess maybe more in tune with the seasons of of uh, you know, exactly. is that is that what you you're sort of uh, alluding to? I guess.
2: Yeah, 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 exactly. So using the mirror of nature to learn how we can we can live and learn and work in healthy rhythms and healthy cycles and honoring the fact that yeah in the seasons you can't skip a season you need you know you need the winter and you need you need that uh, fallow period to for the seeds to plant into the ground and then when they're ready and the warmth of spring comes then new life can happen um, but you can't skip you can't skip through the different seasons mm. so what does that mean Okay, we we acknowledge that and recognize that in nature, but what does that actually mean for human-created systems? And, like you said, you know, all of our systems that we see around us are created on the story of endless growth and maximization and extraction Mm -hmm. and controlling and seeing everything as resources uh, and short-term thinking. And if you flip that, you know, nature actually doesn't operate on endless growth. It has natural cycles of decay and uh, yeah, death as part of the part of the cycle. And rather than maximization, it's a lot about optimization and every part of an ecosystem playing its role in the whole. And uh, recognizing that it's a re- it's about the relationality and not about uh, you know the, the individual hero or individual species that's going to control and dominate in a a whole ecosystem in fact anytime that happens very quickly the system will rebalance itself and and reorder itself to
1: yes so so how how do we move towards that because i love the sound of it and you know uh, for the listeners um I was privileged enough to, to meet, uh, you know, Max and, and Nikki in London, uh, you know, a few more well, a month ago or, or so in person. And I absolutely love their work. It's just phenomenal. Um, and so I can really and I, I yes, 100 percent of think that what you're doing is so needed and so you know spot on. Um, there's a part of me that just feels you know having been in the in the mainstream system and mm-hmm. trying to change it from within that you know I can't remember who said this or where I read this but they sort of it was the you know no system will literally kill itself we sort of all wired to you know so that change in the system is not going to be it's almost like the education system is not going to be willing to change the way things are being done because, because it would equate to almost like killing killing itself. Um, what are your thoughts on that? You know, can, can we can we have change from within, or do you mm-hmm. think that it would have to be a, uh, uh, you know, on the side like changing things coming in. Uh, now, I know that you work, I mean, your your offices are in a the, in the school, right? You're in three year uh, in a school in London. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so what are your thoughts on, on that? <laughs> um,
2: Well, I think the first thing to say is that you know we're so quick to want a solution to a problem. And that way of thinking, that binary symptom reaction, cause and effect is... Uh, is a trick in the way that we we conceptualize things, because nothing is ever as linear or as simple as that. Um, I actually pulled up a quote before we started this conversation, because um there's a quote by Pima Chodron um, and kind of Buddhist teacher that I think is really fitting to this yeah this inquiry. So I'm just going to pull it up. It's about things falling apart, which I think is apt for. The, perhaps where we're at in this moment in education. so things falling apart is a kind of testing and also a kind of healing. We think that the point is to pass a test or to overcome the problem. But the truth is that things don't really get solved. They come together and they fall apart. Then they come together again and they fall apart again. It's just like that. The healing comes from letting there be room for all of this to happen. Room for grief, room for relief, for misery, for joy.
3: Amazing! I've got goosebumps.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, just beautiful. Yes.
2: So that,
1: yeah. So we very fast, right? We want we want a one size fits all. That sort of silver bullet that is going to solve it all for everybody. And so you, you said earlier on that that regenerative leadership is a bit of a buzzword, right? So. Mm-hmm it seems like we just latch onto specific concept you know not so long ago it was all about mindfulness and and meditation in schools mm-hmm. right um so so what would you suggest we do or like we how do we approach it differently so mm-hmm. it doesn't become the the latest for Buzzword and craze in in our sort of quest to change education yeah. and then it just fizzles out
2: um, yeah well I think as you know as that quote I just shared says it's, it's about making room for all of it it's about making room to share what creates space to dream into what we really want to see happen so we can come together around our shared beliefs that of what needs to happen and it's about Creating space to actually, as simple as space, creating space to reflect and actually having feedback loops in, in in systems. You know, when we're on the a lot of people are on the treadmill of learning and education, and there's some time made for reflection and sharing of resources and learning, but not as much as they could be. I mean, our our the event you came to is a great example. We brought together adults and young people from across the broad spectrum of education to, to share stories and I think just in that sharing of stories we're empathizing and we're we're really taking time to feel the grief that people have experienced of their experiences of school or their hopes for the future and I think that you know, that that was a room of people that might not have ever met, and therefore, what can happen as those relationships are formed, I don't know, but it's emergent, and I trust in that relational approach. One of our, we've kind of got five guiding values at the at the visionaries, which could be could be fun to explore in this conversation as a, some anchors of how we how we do take an ecosystemic approach. But yeah, one of them is about creating space to dream and for example in a school that we're working with in London at the moment we're working with a group of educators in that school from across the spectrum of leadership right through to to younger newer newer staff and essentially coaching them over a long period of time to firstly come together in a way that is healthy so that you can practice for themselves to start off with What, what does it how do we support each other, and how do we be regenerative in you know in our relationships, um, and then actually then just creating space to think about what are the practices that they're doing day in day out that are either serving them or not serving them, and, and supporting them to then think about what changes, where's the, where does the change want to happen, and starting there, and starting with where they've got energy, so creating space to dream and to imagine and to be uh, creative and actually to work together on a side-by-side level. Obviously so much of education is very hierarchical and often as you know, we know that reduces our own sense of agency when we aren't really given space to really step into our power. So uh, just changing the dynamics of how who's in the room, who's at the table, um, you know who is at the who's at the table should be all of the different stakeholders from across the system and young people are so often on the menu and not at the table and how do we actually have i guess we call it power with rather than power over so uh, acknowledging that each voice has something really important to say to to inform how the healthy whole can be created and So I guess another example of that is how often you've got intervention groups in education which are or in schools where there's groups of students that are identified as the problem and or yeah and actually what the solution is what the supposed solution is to take them extract them from the setting do something with them and then put them back into the system and hope that it would resolve things and I think you know there's been years and years of that happening and look where we are whereas you could flip it on its head and be like okay well why why are those students not thriving what is it about the ecosystem that they're in that is shaping their poor mental health for example or their desire to not be there and their lack of motivation is that something intrinsically wrong with them or was that because they're in a setting that is not supporting them to flourish I and mean, I'm sure a lot of your listeners already you know preaching to the choir in some ways but actually bringing them to the table and giving them a voice would be probably one of the most empowering things you could do to supporting them to feel like they're valued and that their story matters and that would I think that would really balance the books in terms of who's the teacher and who's the learner there because we're they're then learning from all the experience all the different experiences we're having
1: Uh, as a mum, that resonates really deeply because, as you know, you know, um, our eldest is now home educated because he asked us to be, um, and and so you know, we we listened to what he wanted. And uh, when I was talking to my parents the other night, um, we were talking about the whole experience. And he looked at me and he said to to both my mum and dad, "We chose to home educate me." <laughs> and I loved it because it's
3: like't
1: mm. <laughs> a good reminder that. Yeah. He has a voice, and I love that. I love the fact that you know young people, you know the, the work you do is always about putting young people at the forefront, not like being on the menu, but actually being in the room and being part of the you know round the table, having an impact. Um, so in the work that you do, um do you do you have specific approaches? So you've obviously given us some insights into what matters and you know the relationship and um, so I just wonder whether you you have principles or you know that of quite guiding the work you do that maybe our listeners um, could be inspired by mm-hmm.
2: Yes, as I said, we've got five, Key principles that we keep coming back to that guide our work. And maybe I'll just read them out and then we can you can pick one or one or two that you feel like you feel drawn to. Uh, so the first is taking responsibility, second is power with, instead of power over. Third is thinking like an ecosystem, thriving on diversity. The fourth is space creating space to dream. And the fifth is honoring life cycles. And within all of those, there's lots. (laughs) They're kind of headlines, really. Yeah. But we hope that they can be lenses through which we can then inquire into our practice and Mm -hmm. the systems and the curriculum and what we're, you know, what what we're preparing young people for. Yeah. So,
1: responsibility. How how would you define that? Because in my research, I talk a lot about responsibility, but for me, responsibility is like our, it's the, again, it's the linguist in me, response ability. It's like the ability to choose our response mm-hmm. as opposed to sort of like blaming people or saying, you know, you have to take charge. Yeah.
3: How,
1: how would you define it in the work that you do?
2: So... It's a, yeah, it's a relational capacity. We can't take responsibility in isolation and we can't take responsibility for ourselves or for our community or for how we're treating the planet if we're not in a setting that supports that. So the inquiry there is about, you know, how are we supporting individuals in, within a system to, to take responsibility, to take action, to actually act on, on their beliefs and their values um, yeah, part of that is about understanding our values, so creating time to actually have that conversation and that inquiry about what do we stand for, <laughs> what do we care about. Mm-hmm. And uh, then taking responsibility is about creating opportunities within a system for people to have agency and to, uh, to really act on their beliefs. So one project we're doing at the moment uh, is uh, all around... It's an immersive theatre experiential nature connection day for young people to explore how they would respond uh, in, in an apocalyptic situation as a kind of mock apocalyptic situation. But the metaphor being, well, you know, there's potential apocalyptic situations on the horizon in the UK and already is everywhere around the world because of climate change. So if everyone, every single person has a has a role in that, it's it's a day that supports people to really step into that. Okay, what's my role within this situation through a gamified theater day, but experientially exploring how am I critical in shaping the future and what's my role to play, even if it's a small one.
1: Mm-hmm. And so you've talked about like the individual and then within being as part of a of an ecosystem and being part of a community and how the the community or the environment is is enabling the individual to show up authentically all of those things in effect so one of the things where I'm at with my research is that As I said previously, I used to think, okay, well, it's about flourishing individuals. So if we make sure that the individual is flourishing, then you sort it. And then I quickly realised, no, it doesn't work. And so we then looked at how do we develop well-being within the environment. Yeah. Um, And and then I I I realised, well, it's not either or; it's and. You know, so it's the individual and the community. So, yeah. is that also true in the work that you do, and how does that show up, or how, how important is that?
2: Completely, yeah. I think, I mean, take, uh, take resilience as, a, as an example. You know, the resilience has been a, a character trait that has been very, very much kind of celebrated and sought after as something to develop by schools. You know, there's so many schools have resilience in huge letters on the wall. In, in, their, in, in the foyer or outside of the building and but so often it's defined individualistically it's like you know develop your grits develop your uh, your capacity to deal with adversity but if you look at resilience in nature it's all about the strength of the relationships a tree is resilient because of the neighboring trees and the you know the mycelium and the health of the soil and all of the different plant life and animals it's not it can't be resilient by itself and yet we've come to think that humans should just you know be able to deal with adversity better on their own and be more resilient so yeah I think that's one example where it's like how do we look at this through a relational lens rather than as individuals that are separate Organisms to, or separate, you know, separate beings to develop, um, and actually <laughs> seeing seeing us as inherently whole as well. I think that's a, you know, we also uh, part of our belief in honouring life cycles is that there's wisdom at every point in our life to offer to the whole, and rather, you know, young people rather than being empty vessels to be filled up are beaming with curiosity and imagination and creativity, and they're not. Uh, I, think, I think I used the word in the last podcast you know they haven't been at, uh, adulterated yet <laughs> um, yes so yes. How, how do we you know how do we really create space to to celebrate and honor what children bring and really c- celebrate their gifts and create opportunities for that in a, inner a system, systems so in a school that might be actually you know we do do graduation ceremonies and we do recognize the need to celebrate achievements uh, but it's done in a quite tokenistic uh, way or a narrow, narrow view of what should be celebrated and uh, actually having more regular opportunities in the community for students and teachers and parents to offer and mirror back what are the gifts they see in each other and what they're celebrating what they're grateful for that's what creates the community resilience to then support someone to take risks and to take courageous action to know themselves because the elders in their community are saying yeah we see we see the strengths in you we we value your how you challenge our systems because we know that that's actually going to help us to to have systems that are relevant
1: and what i'm hearing is obviously you know again our societies are very much geared towards us believing that we are individuals and that we've got to fend for ourselves that we're not you know i I blame Margaret Thatcher because obviously she she literally said community doesn't exist,
3: yeah,
1: um so she she has, you know, I don't know whether people before that started um you know they, they were there was a movement before that, but there's this real feeling that you know in my research, it shows up so much with the young people at university. they feel like individuals who have to fend for themselves you have to be perfectionists, and you know have this real fear of failure Mm -hmm. so in the work you do how do we? because it's it's almost like a, a mindset shift right a a complete paradigm shift in the approach um so so how do you do that with 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 people with young people and with the educators so that they you know i guess uh, it, it, hearing you what you said you, what, what you said sort of resonates really deeply with my research because for me it's like it's about flourishing in the garden called life so mm. all the things we talk about really resonates because because i think as human beings we have this innate relationship with nature we naturally I don't know anybody who doesn't feel like that when you step into nature, right? Yeah. Um, So, but I guess we've forgotten because we've built all these big cities and we've been sold these these stories. Mm -hmm. Um, So I would love to hear how you, I mean, do you shift? Is it a paradigm shift or do you have a different approach to to, getting people to remember
2: I'm glad you said the word remember because I think it is all within us it's a matter of connecting uh, connecting to it uh, and yeah you could say paradigm shift it's a narrative shift it's certainly a shift in our worldview and in the stories we're telling ourselves about success and work and the economy you know at the moment the environment sits within the economy as you know, something as, as a subset of the economy rather than the economy being part of an environment. And even just that you know, there's I think there's certain narrative shifts that we support uh, people to make. Uh, I mean, fundamentally, they have to make you know, they, they can only take themselves where they want to go. So uh, we create space for them to really reflect on what that means for them. Uh, there's been a lot of research done on the idea of belonging and the importance of belonging and how you know, actually what employees crave most in the workplace is a sense of belonging and to feel part of something. And I think that that spiritual element in education has been lost as we've created more mechanistic uh, their models of education and How do we create belonging? Well, it's about allowing ourselves, well, feeling seen and feeling accepted for who we are, uh, rather than feeling like we're not uh, good enough or we're not, yeah, we're incomplete until we've done X, Y, and Z and passed these tests and had this accolade and got these letters after our name. And uh, that, you know, that, that exists so much in the education system. in terms yeah so so in all the work we do it's about helping people to feel that sense of belonging to themselves so there's that self-compassion and because we just think that the parts of ourselves that we don't accept we project out into the world so how do I relate to what I perceive as the other whether it's other you know aspects in other people that are diff- I feel are different to me or other environments that I don't relate to which you know for, a lot of people growing up in the city is like the wild and the outdoors and this kind of scary unknown place so I think a lot of our work is really about expanding the sense of self to include people who are different to us places that are different to us and then from that from that expanded self we then see those people and places and beings as part of us and therefore then we're more likely to care for them and and empathize with them so a big part of our work is really about self-inquiry and the relationship between understanding ourselves as a web of relationships because you know I'm also I'm a whole assemblage of different characters and different experiences that have made me who I am and the more I can understand that the more I understand who I am today and then how how I show up in the world
1: And and so do you help people with that? I mean, do you support them in that understanding? Um, Because, again, that sort of resonates really deeply with my research in the sense Mm -hmm. that for me, you know, there's three phases in terms of to be able to flourish. The first one is first awareness. So, like, knowing where you stand and where you are currently Mm -hmm. in the now um, and acknowledging that. Um, and then going to the, okay, so who am I in this garden called life, right? And understanding oneself mm. to then be able to show up authentically and to be your conscious creator, right? Because like you, you you said, the parts of me that I haven't accepted, if I don't feel good enough, then people will kindly reflect that back to me, right? Um, and, and they will show up, people show up to show you the parts of you that you've not fully integrated as a yeah, whole exactly. um, so in your work is it you know it is it that you you support the individuals and then the looking at the community or does it come together is it sort of an interwoven um the 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 approach as in like it's on the land and both um, how, how does it in in terms of of, of the uh, aspect?
2: Yeah, I guess we see the individual and community as two parts of a whole. So they're totally interwoven. I don't think you can inquire into one without thinking about the other. Um, We use coaching a lot in our work and one-to-one coaching or group coaching and actually creating that space for one-to-one support does create more space for depth self-inquiry and also for us it's about going out and going really out into natural settings and nature being a really deep mirror for us of of ourselves and that's something that not a lot of uh, people in the education system create space for Uh, but for us still as we've seen every time we do it it creates it creates that opportunity for paradigm shift because it takes us out of our everyday. It removes the baggage of the systems that we're part of, and even like the buildings and the spaces, you know, like how we are in a classroom space comes with this, its own feeling. And as an environment, it has an energy, which if you get, you know, the kind of conversations you have around a fire are very different to the kind of conversations you have sitting behind a desk.
1: Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, and it was it. This resonates again really deeply because last night we sat outside with my dad, um, at about half ten at night because it was a really hot day, and it was just starting to get cooler, and we just both sat in this like really soft sort of uh, uh, you know couch thing just staring at the sky mm. uh, and just having this amazing conversation about how, you know, to my dad, I feel so little, like so humble looking at all this space. And what I was saying to him when we were in Mayotte in the middle of the Indian Ocean, it was also like a real reminder of how little we are, you know, and how little, although we believe we control our environment, actually on that boat, like looking for hunchback whales, yeah you're nothing you're like tiny little thing and it's sort of really humbling and puts you back in your in you know in a in a i'm saying that in a kind way mm-hmm. like almost encouraging human beings to go back to its place within the ecosystem i guess
2: yeah because we have a very anthropocentric view of the world right where humans are at the center and Actually, if you look at a lot of indigenous cultures, it's a very eco, it's it's completely an ecocentric approach. And there's a lot of reverence for being part of a web of life and thinking beyond just human life, but into all other, you know, all our, all our relations, all the other relationships that we have with other living beings and those that are alive now, but also the spirits of those that, that have come before and those that are to come, I don't know if you come across this idea of seven-generational thinking but, uh, and the children's,
1: so no. tell me, tell me more about that because
2: that sounds really interesting. So in First Nations communities in North America there's this idea of the children's fire and uh, often the elders council would come together and important decisions uh, that had to be made would, would be, would be kind of done around this children's fire and the fire represents the children in seven generations time. So it, all their decisions are vetted by the children in seven generations time to see if it serves their health.
3: Amazing. And that kind
2: of long-term thinking. And that's just, you know, the children isn't just the human children, it's the children of all of all of the living beings that are alive yeah. now. Yeah. So, it's, so it's the whole worldview is rooted in a deep, appreciation of the interdependence of all living beings and I guess it's okay what does that mean for a a school or uh, an educator in a city in London well now let's look at what we're the environments that we're in and the buildings that we're in the spaces that we're in and how are they informing the worldview that we have so in a ecocentric space there might be something natural at the center quite literally at the physical center but also in the in the conceptualization of like the frameworks that are being used or the maps that are being used to guide developmental maps it's like how how are we supporting a an ecosystemic view of things and the and a view that we are constantly reminded that we are part of life, mm. and uh, therefore have to care care for it.
1: Yes, I love that, and I think it's so. So I wonder, you know, because because I sort of I'm thinking like the institution I used to work for.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, a lot of organizations tend to take themselves quite seriously, right? It's a very serious setting and, you know. And I wonder if there's a, if, if you ever get that and how we get around this notion that, you know, anything that is about that, that eco you know, ecosystem approach and sort of rethinking about that or reintroducing it in education if it's seen as being slightly hippie or slightly, um, you know, cause I, I had that, for example, when I was doing a lot of mindfulness, people just sort of go, oh, this is just all like a little bit woo-woo or like mm. the, the notion of spirituality and all of those things can be seen as not intellectual enough. Mm. So do you experience that in, in, in your work or not at all? Or do you just tend to, to work with people who are naturally drawn to, to your work anyway?
2: No, I think we actively go and seek those who might not naturally find us because uh, that's really where the interesting work happens, I think. And, of course, you have to be really sensitive to where people are at in their life and their worldview. You can't come in and say, oh, this way is better than your way. That's a recipe for... Uh, being stuck in a conflict.
1: Ego is sort showing up even more, right? Yeah. It's, it's
2: and I think everyone can relate to seeing themselves as part of nature. You know, we are what we eat. Let's look at what we let's look at food as a prime example. Uh, it's what the, the kind of food we eat determines our health, our mental health, our physical health, our spiritual health are uh, whether we're growing that food how disconnected we are from where that food's come from where it goes once we've processed it where we put the rubbish you know they're systems that everyone is part of and that's a really easy starting point so we're for the school we're based in we're supporting them to develop a roof garden to support more circular systems in the school and getting the wider community involved in food growing as a not just as a way to connect with nature and support our health but also to learn about from one another about how we all relate to food and the cultures all of the cultures that inform that and uh, all the rituals and practices that come with food you know saying grace before meal or kind of having some sort of gratitude practice that's different in every in every culture and yet there's a universality there's universalities around that and and um, yeah so 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 food is is one really easy easy way in and and also you know, look, we breathe air so the air in london i was reading recently is you know you're, as a child growing up in london you're you're likely to develop a 10% reduced lung capacity to the national average because the air you're breathing is so unhealthy for you and you know mortality rates They've started linking, being able to really causally link uh, air pollution to uh, deaths through respiratory diseases and um, respiratory issues. Now, so it's like we can't deny, you know, when we start to explore that. And I guess that's what we're saying. That like we're not saying we've got the answer. We're saying, well, let's let's just deepen our awareness and our understanding of how the air that we breathe, the food that we eat, the spaces we inhabit, what we focus on informs our worldview and our perspective and that actually there's wisdom in all corners of society society about how to then remember how to do things differently. It's not about necessarily doing something new, it's about just stripping away what's, yeah, allowing Mm -hmm. things to fall apart so that we can come back together in a way that is more regenerative and restorative
1: yeah and and also because some some kids in in big cities will never have seen nature right if you've grown up in london um i remember visiting um this uh the, the riverside education in birmingham and one of the the teachers there was telling me how um they um they ran during covid they've got a farm as part of one of their settings um and, and it's a school for children with autism and sort of special educational needs who just wouldn't, you know, couldn't go to school and didn't, it didn't work. Um, and I, I really, if you can, if you can go, I really recommend you go. It's just amazing. amazing. Uh, but during COVID, they actually ran sessions for the children to go to the farm, and some of the children had never seen like a goat or had never seen, you know. And you know, any of the animals, um, which you know, when I heard that, I was like, "Oh wow!"
3: Yeah,
1: it never entered my head because of my own experience that you know that was possible. And yet, that's that's the case. You know, some children never, you know, they 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 don't like you were saying they don't relate the the food on their plates to the, the the animals or the plants. Um,
2: yeah and that's yeah food comes from Tesco's doesn't it yeah not from uh, like... anywhere else
1: <laughs> <laughs> and, look, and if you eat processed foods then you know it doesn't look like a, mm. a you've picked from your you know your garden like a tomato from your you know that you've just grown so
2: yeah and yeah, mm-hmm. if, yeah if, if, that's a great example like if you know if you want to eat meat and you want to go through the process of preparing an animal to eat it that's a really visceral embodied experience that's going to bring up all kinds of emotions if you've not done that before. And just that as an experience is gonna teach us a lot about our relationship to other living things. And maybe we might develop some more appreciation and reverence for the meat that comes in a plastic packaging if we've had that experience.
1: Yes. And Wayfinders, so you know, when I interviewed uh, uh, Elizabeth, she she was talking about how in Hawaii that like they they would go and and fish, but they would literally bless and say thank you before they they did the fishing,
3: mm-hmm. and
1: then afterwards once you know and she literally said the fish would come in their nets. It's like <laughs> this sort of real like yeah okay I'll come and give my life so that you can be fed and. That is a completely different shift again, right? In the approach and that interconnection with the interconnectedness and the relationship you were talking about.
2: Exactly, yeah, and it's honouring that there's a reciprocal relationship and the importance of reciprocity. You know, in in doing an act like that, you're you're acknowledging that you are taking, but also that, that there's also a limited amount that you can take if you want to continue to be provided for by these fish and and actually you've got a duty to to give back in a way by by being considerate about how much you're fishing and where you're fishing and how you're treating that the land and the sea and the resources you're using so just those small little acts uh, are really what make up uh, what we're talking about here so about having an mm-hmm. ecosystemic approach it's not it's not even necessarily about you know, obviously there are some some bigger systemic things that should probably shift but also you know that can feel quite overwhelming what about if we just start by like think you know how we start a, a session or how do we hold the space like, are we sitting how are we sitting how are we arriving how are we acknowledging all the different parts of us that are showing up you know, the amount of teachers i know that show, you know, show up to teach school having absolutely no space to acknowledge all of the Stuff that they're dealing with outside of school and expected to just like squash that down and get on with the job. It's like, no, you're, it's not going to work. No,
1: because the kids are all going to show those things up through the day, right?
2: And what you're (laughs) saying to the kids is it's not okay to be in grief or it's not okay to, to be sad or to, you know, it's not okay to cry. And what that, it just marginalizes a part of us and it marginalizes that part of us that is able to really hold difficult emotions and difficult situations so then over the long term on a big scale what that does is yeah it makes us scared of death and afraid to to be with conflict and actually see all these things as part of the part of the natural experience of, of being a human and a living being on this planet
1: mm.
2: and so
1: and I, what you said just now is actually something I wanted to explore. So I'm glad you you like literally brought it up is this idea of like the those cycles, right? In 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 life, in terms of, you know, there's a there's a beginning and an end in life, right? And then between mm-hmm. there's life. Um and there also seems to be in our current society and, and in our lives this almost like taboo approach to death and to aging. So mm-hmm. you were talking about the elders and, you know, what really always slightly disturbs me about life in the UK is that we seem to want to hide our elders yeah. when there's so much to contribute. Um, you know, when you look at all the research, it's sort of like the impact of, um, you, you know, taking children age four with like a, a, a people who are older and how they just underneath the thrive and flourish. So do you approach that in the work you do, like getting people to um to come to terms with the with this whole idea of like, you know, we are all going to die um and all of us at some point won't be here, you know? And 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 what does that look like?
2: Mm-hmm. Beautiful yeah I mean we we go there a lot and uh, it's always really beautiful when we do because actually when we connect to you know connect to what we're afraid of it brings us into closer connection to what we value and actually coming close to death brings us into life it enlivens us because you know a funeral is there to celebrate what is it we loved about that person about and about their life so it's it's reaffirming what we value about life. So, yeah, we, we're constantly thinking about how do, we, how do we do transitions well? How do we meet those difficult parts? We use a, a model called the Four Shields as one of many tools that we work with, which is a developmental wheel that looks at the seasons and the cardinal points, north, south, east and west, and maps different aspects of our uh, human Uh, our human nature onto the mirror of outer nature and uh, that gives us a a really clear framework to work with to help people to explore death as part of the part of the cycle and elder I mean elderhood's a great example because elderhood is not something that we value as you've said our elders are often kind of associated with life age rather than a quality and even with re- the idea of retirement, is that you know you've retired from duty now, just just wait to die. It's <laughs> but what about all that life experience I've had that has taught me how to be with all the challenges that life throws at us? What if you know that's got something to offer? And and you know, in a lot of indigenous cultures, the el- elders and the young are really revered because they're they're at what's called the midnight hour. They're at that they're closest to the spirit world and the point where. Uh, life and death meet and you know the, the the research shows that the healthiest societies are the ones that are really living intergenerationally and the young and the old are really uh, in close relationship because they support there's a reciprocity there and they support one another um, and, and yeah, you know, elderly isolation is such a problem like young people are isolated and feel alone elderly people are isolated and are alone people in their careers often feel Isolated and alone is, is a real epide- epidemic of disconnection.
1: Um, yes. And, you know, like, as you know, my, my hair is, is grey. It's turned grey quite early on. Um, and for the pandemic, I actually decided that rather than dyeing my hair, I was going to really embrace it. Because I, I was saying to my husband, for every single grey is wisdom. i don't want to be ashamed of that. Why would I be ashamed of yeah. like lived experience? It's the, uh, you know, and I think again, that like our societal construct is that we, you know, and I think this is true of women, for example, you know, it's uh, you know, in your fifties, if you're a man and you're gray, you look, uh, you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Distinguished, right? But if if a woman has grey hair, it makes you look older, and I'm like, well, how does that work yeah. <laughs> in terms of construct? Um, and I think it's really important because it's uh, it's I see with with again with Tom being out of of mainstream education now being home educated. Every Tuesday this year, he's been going to this course. Uh, in a village where uh, where my mother-in-law lives and her husband died uh, or passed away uh, on the first day of my sabbatical so she's obviously grieving and on her own and then he spends the evening with her um and they've bonded and they've like it's really helped her through like the grieving process um and that, so it's made me like reflect on that on like the how as as societies we to just you know we put our kids in schools with like people the same age as them and <laughs> and we get old people to just be in, in rooms with other old people and yeah know, it and sounds yeah
2: and there's great examples particularly in primary schools of you know like uh care homes and primary schools linking up and actually the the elderly coming together for, like storytelling and Uh, or like playing with the youth and how much that actually supports their end of life experience and actually their longevity of life but also you know the stories and the wisdom that is passed on to the young people Mm -hmm. and there's also stories of schools becoming community hubs where yes there's the learning in the school happening but there's also all kinds of other workshops and spaces that the community are invited into and there's maybe like a community garden and then Therefore, there's that intergenerational, this really is a learning space because yeah, there's the curriculum that has to happen in certain settings. And also there's space for all of these other relationships and all of the the other emergent kinds of learning that we just can't account for, but are made possible by who's in the space and who has ownership of the space. Mm,
1: Beautiful. And so, Imagine I give you, and I don't believe in magic wands, but for this, <laughs> the purpose of this podcast and this conversation, I'm giving you a magic wand. You can have this ecosystemic approach in education. What would we be seeing, hearing, feeling everywhere in our schools and in our societies? And like, how different would it be?
2: Wow, a beautiful provocation. Um, well, I think, first of all, the spaces, that the spaces of education would be aesthetically incredibly beautiful and really support and awe and wonder of the natural world through the buildings and the, the plants and the food that's growing there. And the adults and uh, the people of all ages, who are involved in that kind of space are really giving a lot of love to the land and through really giving to the land, receiving a lot from it and uh, you know, biodiversity would flourish and uh, decisions would be made collectively. Uh, learning would be self-directed and people would be following their curiosities about what they're interested in, what they're curious about who they are, finding out who they are through time alone in the natural world, but also time together and uh, you know, practicing healthy communication, practicing ways of dealing with conflict in restorative ways. They'd be cooking together, they'd be dancing together, singing together, making instruments together, playing those instruments. They would be exploring death together. And, you know, if there was death in the community, then they'd be finding ways to honor, the, honor that. And uh, they'd be have offering, right, they'd have a rite of passage experiences that are appropriate to their cultures and traditions. They'd be creating traditions together. They'd be working with the seasons and creating time to slow down. And fundamentally, people would be supported to really be following their intrinsic motivation and flourishing on their terms rather than because someone's told them something's good for them.
1: Beautiful. I really love that. (laughs) (laughs) And so my next question to you, that is like, that would be so wonderful if we could have that, right? Mm -hmm. Um, What's the first step? What would you say like people who are listening and going yes I am with you on this um, and I really want to I'd love this you know mm. what would you encourage people who are listening to us to to do as a as a first step? Uh,
2: so as a first step it's about who's at the table <laughs> if we're making decisions let's think about who's at the table and make sure that anyone affected by those decisions is at the table and making sure nature has a seat at the table and the voices of the more than the human world has a seat at the table because without them we're screwed so yeah creating opportunities for collective decision making and storytelling from all the corners of a community would be a, a first step
1: amazing and you've obviously Told us a really beautiful story and I really love it and I love speaking with you. So I've got two final questions for you. Um right. the first one is uh, is there one book that you would really recommend to our listeners as being transformational or really important in that area and not sphere of the ecosystemic sort of approach in education?
2: Mm. Yes. And there's a book I read quite recently, it's called Belonging by Tokopa Turner. And she's an Indigenous elder from Canada and talks a lot about how do we, well, the whole book is about how do we find belonging in ourselves, uh, but also in, in the collective and in the world. And I think if we can do that, a lot of the rest would slot into place. Yeah.
1: Oh, sure definitely agree okay wonderful I'll put the link I'll look it up and I'll, I'll, I'll put the link in the, I'll um, bookmark it to to read it myself as well so thank you um and then the final one is, is a similar one to that I asked you on the first round of the podcast so if there is one thing or one aspect of this conversation that you would really love our listeners to take away or something that i haven't asked you and that you wish i'd asked you um you know what would it be
2: um to get in touch and have a chat i really want to learn from more more people and learn together and really believe in strengthening relationships so you know we're still a small organization in one small corner of this beautiful marble that we live on and i'd love to connect with people who are also thinking about these questions and hearing their perspectives and seeing what the other people are up to because I'm constantly discovering amazing projects and amazing people. And I'm just like, wow, there's so many people out there doing good work. And actually we just need to support one another and celebrate each other and work together. So I would love it if anyone who felt called to felt uh, they had the permission to reach out and ch- chat. And uh, even if it's to tell me I'm wrong, and I've got something, you know, to say something and share a different perspective.
1: Amazing. Well, I'll make sure that I obviously put all your details so people can reach out to you. Um, yeah. Amazing. Thank you so much again, Max. Thanks for
2: inviting me on. It's been really yeah. fun.
1: Yeah. Amazing conversation as always.
2: Yeah. Great. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Please don't hesitate to get in touch with me with any comments or questions you may have. You can find me on Twitter at Flourishing HE or on LinkedIn at Fabienne Vales. Please also like this podcast as it's helping me promote it. And don't hesitate to share it widely with your friends and family. Thank you so much for listening and for your support.